Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, for you are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. An overly zealous Christian came up to a devout Hindu one day and decided to try to convert the Hindu. After many minutes of explaining why Christianity was the only valid faith, the overly zealous Christian threw up her hands and said, but you have to be born again. The Hindu looked at her quite perplexed and responded with all sincerity, but I have been born again and again and again and again. We chuckle at the joke, but the experience isn't all that far from reality for many folks. I can't tell you the number of times I heard that question, are you born again when I was a child? Now, mind you, not from people in my family or at my home church, but from those around us. I could be standing in line at the grocery store or sitting in the stands at a high school football game or waiting to see the doctor, and someone would look over at me and ask, are you born again? Now, I knew what they meant by that question, but I was never quite sure how to respond to them. Along with other progressive Christians, I was often tempted to answer no. The first time was more than sufficient, thank you very much. Growing up in a church where that language was mostly foreign to our way of speaking about faith, it was often frustrating to be confronted almost on a daily basis with that persistent question. Now, it would be unfair if I didn't admit that the people who asked that question of me and others were being sincere and respectful in their understanding of God and the world and people. They were genuinely concerned for the eternal well-being of those around them and felt that the only way they could truly ascertain the state of a person's relationship with God was to ask that central question. Of course, if I had responded with my snarky retort about the first birth being more than sufficient, I'm sure most of those well-meaning folks would have quickly quoted John 3.16 to me and begun telling me about how God loved me enough to send Jesus to die for me, and I only needed to accept Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior in order to be right with God and assured of a place with God in heaven after my death. Again, now I'm not doubting the sincerity or intentions of these good folks, but I do have to say that most of us who are progressive Christians have probably heard these verses from John enough in our lives to inwardly groan when they're read or quoted in our presence. Maybe we just tune out entirely, and who can blame us? The sad thing is that we have handed these verses over without realizing that there is great insight for those of us from the progressive end of Christianity as well. While often misused, these words from Jesus point to a deeper truth about our faith that we must understand. In order to reclaim them, though, we must return them to their context. It's absolutely essential to understand that these verses come at a very specific point in John's narrative of Jesus' life. 
Jesus has just walked into the temple during the Passover celebration and thrown out all of the merchants and the moneylenders who had taken up residence in the outer courts of that house of worship. His actions have both angered and deeply impressed the people of Jerusalem. On the one hand, he's challenged the status quo enjoyed by those in power, and yet on the other hand, he has stood up to those who would exploit and oppress the most vulnerable in society. Jesus' life and ministry came during a time when there was relative peace between the residents of Palestine and their Roman occupiers. After years of attempted rebellions, a fragile peace was held in place by religious and political leaders among the Jewish people who were intent on preserving their place within society by preventing any further attempt at revolt. The merchants and money lenders that Jesus threw out of the temple belonged to this small group of folks, and they were certainly not happy with Jesus' cleansing of the temple. Now, the vast majority of the population belonged to another group of people, those whom we would call poor and vulnerable. They were the ones who struggled each and every day to eke out a meager existence through farming and fishing and baking and sowing and other forms of agriculture and service. Those who were sick or differently abled or orphaned or widowed were often forced into the destitute life of begging for every morsel of food that they ate. These were the folks whose entrance into the temple was made virtually impossible by the merchants and moneylenders. They had no money with which to buy the required sacrificial offerings and nothing they could sell or use as collateral to obtain the money to buy those offerings. Their access to the religious life of the temple was almost completely eliminated by their place in the economic and social order. These were the folks who saw that Jesus who saw what Jesus did and heard about it later and were so impressed by the courage of this itinerant rabbi who dared to stand up for them. He had made clear that access to God was not limited to the wealthy and the powerful, and that was revolutionary. What's really interesting is that Nicodemus, the man who comes to Jesus in this story, was one of those elites. He was a religious leader among the Jewish people in first century Palestine, someone whose position and privilege were challenged by Jesus' actions in cleansing the temple. One would think that, Jesus, that Nicodemus would be angry with Jesus, but there's something about him that draws Nicodemus to him. Now, Nicodemus is no fool. He knows what Jesus has done, and he knows that being seen with Jesus would place him at risk with his peers. That's why he slinks away to Jesus in the middle of the night. He comes under the cover of darkness in hopes that no one will see him, but come he must. Something about Jesus has compelled him and won't let him go. This respected religious leader comes to Jesus late at night because he can't stop thinking about what he's seen. Jesus is different from every religious leader he's ever known. There's something new and different and real about this man who dares to stand up for those who have no other voice in society. His words to Jesus make clear that he knows this man and what he's done are holy. Rabbi, we know that you were a teacher sent from God because no one can do the things you've done unless they're from God. 
Did you catch it? Nicodemus calls Jesus rabbi. This title was reserved for educated and respected teachers who had been properly ordained in the tradition of Israel, something that we have no indication Jesus ever received. Yet here we have a, a legitimate rabbi of Israel address Jesus not as an equal, but as a teacher. Nicodemus has seen something in Jesus he hasn't seen in any other context in his life, the strength and courage to do what is right in the face of injustice. Jesus knows that the Holy Spirit is at work in Nicodemus' life, and so he responds to this statement with this perplexing, no one can see the reign of God unless one is born from above. Nicodemus mistakes these words for a literal statement, and Jesus presses him further. Jesus knows that Nicodemus is capable of understanding. You must be born of both water and the Spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the Spirit is spirit. You must be born from above. Nicodemus came to Jesus in fear, weighed down with concerns over what others would think of him if they knew he was associated with Jesus. He was terrified of what such an association might cost him. And Jesus looks directly to him and says, you must be born of water. That is, you must be washed free of this burden, set free from the fears that bind you. And then Jesus goes further. You must also be born of the Spirit. That is, your whole way of life must change. You must realize that earthly position and privilege have no place in the reign and rule of God. Let go of what keeps you bound in fear and embrace the freedom of new life that comes from knowing what is really important in life. Jesus doesn't let up on Nicodemus. He keeps going. So much of the religious tradition of Israel at the time of Jesus focused on the judgment of God and the struggle to find acceptance from God by keeping a long list of rules and regulations. Nicodemus knows that tradition. And he was a teacher and a guardian of it. Jesus challenges this whole worldview when he looks at Nicodemus and says, I've told you these things, yet you won't believe me. You struggle to let go of a literal understanding of the world and to understand the deep truth to be found there. The power to heal the hearts and minds of those who yearn for the presence of God has always been with you, Jesus says. Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness to remind the people of God's presence and power, and now Jesus, the truly human one, will be lifted up among the people as the embodiment of God's healing power and presence among them. Jesus' words challenge Nicodemus to let go of the rules and the regulations, to understand the Spirit of God is at work behind and beyond the traditions, to understand and trust in the one who has been faithful throughout Israel's history, throughout human history. God is the one who has always been at work healing and restoring and making whole. This same God is still at work even now, especially now in the person of Jesus. Nicodemus may struggle to understand what Jesus says, but Jesus invites him to trust, to trust that he has come to know 
that God is at work in Jesus and God won't rest until the whole world is healed. These are hard words for Nicodemus to hear, not because he doesn't want to believe them, but because he's being asked to rethink everything he's always known about God and the world. Jesus is asking Nicodemus to risk everything. And Nicodemus is standing there wondering if he has the strength and the courage to risk everything for the sake of a dream so grand as the healing of the world. It's the same dilemma we face each and every time we hear the stories of Jesus. We catch a glimpse of a world free of hunger, poverty, violence, and every form of injustice, a world made whole, and yet all too often we waver in our willingness to trust God, that that vision is attainable because we know the world in which we live. We know its plausibilities and its limitations, and yet Jesus never gives up on us. Jesus continues to invite us to be born again from above, to trust in God enough to give our all for the sake of the healing of the world. The great John Wesley writes, New birth is that great change which God works in the soul when God brings it into life. When the love of the world is changed into the love of God, pride into humility, passion into meekness, hatred envy, malice into a sincere, disinterested love for all humankind. I think of the story of Jürgen Moltmann, that great German theologian. Moltmann came from a privileged family in early 20th century Germany. When Hitler rose to power, Moltmann's family found themselves among the elite. Their position kept the young Jürgen safe from the horrors of war until 1944 when he was drafted and sent to the Western Front. Recognizing that Germany's defeat was assured, Moltmann surrendered to the first British soldier he met and was quickly sent to a prison camp in England. In those months of imprisonment, Moltmann, who had grown up in a secular family, had nothing to read but a copy of the New Testament given to him by a Scottish Presbyterian chaplain. He read it over and over again during those days, and it changed him. The young man who had no prior experience of God or faith found himself drawn to the person of Jesus in the way of life Jesus taught. Haunted by the realization of the horrors that had been inflicted upon the world by his fellow Germans, Moldman sought some semblance of hope and a way to offer his life to the cause of healing the wounds inflicted by his nation. He wrote, All that was left was an inward drive, a longing, which provided the impetus to hope. When the war was over and the prisoners were released, Jürgen Moltmann returned to Germany and dedicated his life to the way of Jesus. He became a pastor and one of the greatest theologians of the church. Moltmann's life since his conversion has been spent in the struggle to bring hope to a world all too often filled with hatred and despair. He writes, Faith, where ever it develops into hope, causes not rest but unrest, not patience but impatience. It does not calm the unquiet heart, but is itself this unquiet heart in us. Those who hope in Christ can no longer
put up with reality as it is, but begin to suffer under it, to contradict it. Peace with God means conflict with the world, for the goad of the promised future stabs inexorably into the flesh of every unfulfilled present. Jesus invited Nicodemus to be born again from above, to be changed by the power of God's love. He invited a young German prisoner of war named Jürgen Moltmann to let go of his hatred and despair and embrace a vision of hope for the world. And that same Jesus stands here among us this morning and invites us, like them, to be born again from above, to trust the one who has made us, and to give our lives for the sake of the world. Amen.